Hello. Hello. I'm Kenna. I'm Koal. And welcome back to Diagnosing, Diagnosing a Killer. killer. Are we going to rap again? No. Can I, Never going <laughs> to rap. Every time. It's not even a rap. It's, it's just not. weird. It's we're just awkward. back with my part two of Robert Berdella. I think at the end of the mental breakdown, I was listening back and I said Robert Bernella, so I apologize because it's my case. I don't even know his name. Who? (laughs) So before we get started today, I just really quickly wanted to shout out one of the clinicians that I work with. Mm -hmm. I'm not going to say her name because I don't know if she's comfortable with that, but I was speaking with her earlier and she said that she started listening and I'm really excited. And she got one of her girlfriends to listen as well. And she was actually talking about when we did the criminalization of mental illness, mental breakdown. And she was like, this is seriously no judgment. I just want to let you know because I didn't know and my friend taught me something. But I think I recall saying something along the lines of if you are taken into a hospital setting for suicide watch, they keep you for 72 hours and then they release you. Um, That's actually incorrect. This person does work with an inpatient facility and it may be different per facility, but at least for this one, um, they actually keep you for 72 hours at the most, but afterwards, if they still think that you are needed, or even if they don't, they will actually um, refer you to an inpatient facility or an outpatient facility to get ongoing mental health care. So I think that's really cool. I didn't know. Yeah. It kind of sounds like obvious, but you know, it sometimes it doesn't. Maybe we maybe well, I made an assumption that I shouldn't have. So. Yeah, unfortunately, you know, in the case of Andre Thomas, nobody really followed up with him. Yeah. And then um, it was also that uh, the British guy, what was... Uh, Alexander... Alexander Renwell, I think. Renwell. Louis Renwell. Louis Renwell. Hyphenated. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, Wow, we're like (laughs) twins today. (laughs) Twinning. Yeah, but uh, I guess I made the assumption that that's the case in every situation, which thankfully it's not. So thank you for that little piece of information that was really kind of nice to hear actually like okay no we don't just throw people to the curb like don't assume that. <laughs> but unfortunately it does happen in, in certain cases like that um well that being said I think we're gonna get right into part two we talked about Robert Bradella last time we talked about his uh first six victims he we talked about how he had his little mo that was kind of changing but was usually pretty similar I think we left off talking about uh Christopher Bryson it was mm-hmm. the last victim and um the great escape yes and how uh the last thing that Brunella said was quote i've gotten this far with other people before and they're dead now because of mistakes they made Ugh, so, i hate that i hate pretty that so eerie. Much. yeah what? so so we're just gonna go ahead and get started with part two we're gonna pick up right where we left off now by the third day of his capture christopher bryson had earned robert's trust And he was actually able to convince him to establish a daily routine of tying his hands in front of him after he was abused rather than above his head into the bed like he had done in the past. Christopher's reasoning being that it was restricting the circulation to his arms. And I guess at this point, maybe Robert felt some sympathy for him, question mark. I don't know. We can't assume that that guy's capable of sympathy. Right, of course, yeah. But I guess, like, he started trusting him, and he's like, oh, it's like a mutual trust thing. Yeah, he's like, well, he's not going to do anything. Which is gross. Yeah, which is disgusting. I trust you enough to wrap your hands in front of you. 
than behind you. Yeah. Like, Ooh. yeah, this Look is a all test of privilege trust. you get. Exactly. Now, along with this, Christopher had also actually convinced Robert to leave the TV on in the room with the remote control left between his legs whenever Robert left the room so that he could, like, control the TV, obviously. So Christopher later stated that he almost consistently was thinking about ways to escape, like, almost constantly. Mm-hmm. And uh, regardless of how submissive he was pretending to be, he right. was always in the back of his mind trying to figure out, okay, how the hell do I get out of here? As one would. Yeah. Now, the following day, this is now day four of his capture, Christopher noticed a book of matches that was accidentally left in the room by Robert when he left for work. Well, you work for a few hours at a time, so this is, like, looking pretty good, right? Um, He was somehow able to get one of the matches lit. I'm not sure how, but he's a bad bitch. And using that, he actually burned through the rope that held his hands together and was able to break free. Bad bitch alert. Right? So after getting out of the restraints, Christopher bravely jumped from the second story window wearing nothing but a dog collar around his neck. We talked about that in part one. And also breaking a bone in his foot in the (gasps) process. Ouch. Oh, no. Oh, this poor guy. At least he got out. I know. (sighs) This is when he spotted the parking meter attendant and shouted for the man to call the police. The meter attendant led Christopher to the house he had been approaching where they promptly called the police who arrived minutes later. When the police arrived, they questioned Christopher for nearly four hours. He initially claimed that he had been hitchhiking when Robert picked him up and abducted him. Content warning. After picking him up, Christopher stated that Robert kidnapped, raped, and tortured him for four days before he escaped. As Christopher spoke, the officers noted that along with the dog collar and broken footbone, he had also had red, swollen eyes and visible scars and welts over his entire body. Two of the four officers at the scene were informed to maintain a discreet surveillance of Robert's property. One officer accompanied Christopher to the ER, and the last officer radioed the Kansas City Police Department to request a formal search warrant of the property to be written up so that they had it when they arrived. Upon arriving to the hospital, police were able to get more information from Christopher. He explained that along with all of the abuse, Robert had also shown him photos of other men who appeared to be deceased. He stated that Robert told him that these had been previous individuals he had unsuccessfully attempted to, quote, collect as his sexual slaves. The collector. The collect word comes back. Furthermore, Christopher stated that Robert told him he had no intention of ever allowing him to leave his home, and he claimed to have killed the other men who became a nuisance to him. He also told Christopher he would do the same to him if he acted the same way as the previous victims. That is awful. Isn't that so scary to hear, though? This is sad. That's like, like, this is what I've done and what I'm capable of, and this is what's going to happen to you if you don't cooperate. Like, what would you do? terrifying. Like, you know that that person is capable of such acts that he's, you know, saying. But I'm, you know, I'm wondering if that's not also, it's like, kind of like a... Like a fear tactic? Well, for... For Robert, yes, but in Christopher's mind, it's like, what do I have to lose then? Like, I'm going to plan my escape because the only other alternative is death, you know? Like, might as well go out fighting, you know, if if I am. Well, good for freaking him. He made it. The same afternoon that Christopher escaped, police arrested Robert on charges of sexual assault against him. When he declined to allow officers in his home, they had received the search warrant right about the same time and were able to go ahead and enter the residence anyways. Middle fingers. Yeah. (laughs) Middle finger. No one can see you. (laughs) 
Corroborating Christopher's story, investigators located burnt ropes attached to posts on the foot of the bed on the second floor. Also in the room was the electric transformer that was plugged into the wall with wires leading to the bed. A metal tray containing syringes, small bottles that looked like they were holding prescription drugs, cotton swabs, and eye drops were also close to the bed. The posts on the bed were also noted to be extensively worn, leading investigators to believe that restraints had been tied to them recently and multiple times with victims trying to escape from them. So fucking awful. Content warning, this does get pretty graphic, so I will just put a big content warning right here. During the search of the rest of the house, investigators discovered a human skull inside of a closet on the second floor, and another partially decomposed head was found in the backyard. The search also uncovered several human vertebrae that were noticeably scarred by both hacksaw and knife marks. Along with this, there were two separate envelopes found containing several human teeth. Both a hacksaw and a miter saw were found in the basement, along with a chainsaw that was covered in blood, flesh, and pubic hair. A chainsaw. Aluminal tests later determined that the basement, as well as both trash cans outside, were covered in blood. In the home in multiple different locations, investigators found 334 Polaroid pictures and 34 snapshot prints of various male victims. These pictures showed Christopher Bryson and several other men in both life and death, and many images had been taken as subjects were tortured. Lastly, the search discovered numerous restraints, sexual devices, pornographic literature, a book on narcotics, and hypodermic needles. Perhaps the most eerie find, however, the Journal of Roberts with intimate details of each victim and their torture logs. Inside, there were also several newspaper clippings from the Kansas City Star regarding a missing young man, Jerry Howell. A wallet and driver's license for James Ferris were also discovered. So this motherfucker took out newspaper clippings from his first victim that he abducted and was just, like, hanging on to them for keepsake. How does that house not fucking smell? I said it, it in the first to. episode. I'm going to say it in this one, too. How do you walk in there and not be like, this smells like death, Petrid. like puke and shit and blood and death? Like, how does that... And rotten shit. But, like, like the outside of his house was all unkempt, too. Maybe they just thought he was a nasty fuck. I mean, he was. <laughs> Don't go in that house. That's where the witch lives. Like, but seriously, like, how do you not? Like, you know, know, and that he opened his house to all different types of people. And, like, who'd want to stay there? Like, how do you not walk in that house and just smell oh, it's the awful. nastiness? But when you think about it, the people that he were was abducting and letting it stay at his home were transient, like... You know, people that were down on their luck, people that probably didn't have any money or probably really didn't give a shit a where they were staying. Roof over their head yeah, and all. exactly. Yeah. Before the search of the property had concluded, the Kansas City Police Department had assembled a task force of 11 detectives and one sergeant to focus solely on this case. This group was tasked with looking into Robert's history and discovered that he was a well known individual among the male prostitutes in town. And had earned a reputation <laughs> for preying on young men. <laughs> Sorry, I don't, mean to, I don't mean to laugh, but yeah, they never suspected it. Yeah. Oh, even, you know, he was an upstanding citizen. Mm -hmm. For sure. He just had a reputation about, you know, creepy. Just being, being creepy. creepy. 
In fact, most of the men involved in this community stated that they were reluctant to accept him as a client because he was considered very strange when it came to his interactions, but also that he was a known suspect in the disappearance of Jerry and James. So, it... Like, known to the community or known to the fucking police? No, known to the community. The community was like, why hasn't anybody arrested this dude yet? And the police were like, oh, I don't know, he's a stand-up guy. I don't know, he's a stand-up guy. Yeah. Oh my god. He's on the Neighborhood Watch or or something, right? Wasn't he, like, Neighborhood Watch? He was, like, the head of the Neighborhood Watch. He, like, owned the thing. He owned it. (laughs) He invented it. In fact, during the original investigation of these two missing men, Robert was taken in for questioning on two different occasions... And denied any involvement both times. Remember on, earlier on in part cases. one that I said that he wasn't ever suspected? I was incorrect. He, yeah. was. <laughs> he was multiple times, apparently. <laughs> According to my research that I did. That I, I did. <laughs> on which cases? Jerry and James. The two oh, okay. people that he was suspected of in the community. Yeah. Despite being considered a suspect and even being put under surveillance for a short period of time... Police were unable to find any solid evidence linking him to either men's disappearance, and in both cases, Robert refused to speak with police without a lawyer moving forward. Mm -hmm. He would later even have his lawyer reach out to police and inform them that they would be filing a harassment complaint against them if their questioning did not cease. Oh my god, but isn't that so typical of someone who's like a pathological liar and guilty guilty, is that they're like... (laughs) Yeah. <laughs> yeah. No, everything that they said, they actually did to me. Seriously. You don't understand. Seriously. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. Content warning for this next part. When the police finally were able to identify the victims based on evidence, they contacted the families to get confirmation of identity. James Ferris's wife identified him in several photos found at the property, including some taken after death. Paul Howell formally identified one picture of a young man hanging upside down in Robert's basement as Jerry Howell. Several other photos had been assigned to detectives to determine if the victim was alive or deceased in the photo, and if they were alive, to determine the circumstances of the photo, what was happening at the time it was taken. Like if it was a consensual sex act or whatever. Okay. Get this. Several of these images had even depicted some body parts of the photographer. So on April 13th, Robert was ordered to pose nude for a series of photographs in order so the position of his body would match the unidentified person taking the photos. Damn. And it matched the shape and size of his ugly ass. Damn. That's savage. Isn't that wild? And what a fucking idiot. Like, <laughs> let me just put, like, my penis in here that they can totally identify. Like, <laughs> he probably never thought that he would have to pose nude That's in front true. of a bunch of police officers and well, then reenact it. I hope they gave him the old squat and cough. <laughs> it's like, I hope they gave him the good old whoopsie daisy. <laughs> oh my god. <laughs> gave him the, the <laughs> ring the doorbell ding dong. Numerous male names had been found scribbled on various pieces of paper in the home as well, so detectives tracked these men down as well in order to see if they knew anything. One of the individuals was able to be tracked down by the name of Freddie Kellogg. He was able to inform detectives that he and several other young men had intermittently stayed with Robert since the early 1980s, and that Robert was known for giving his lodgers drugs, typically intravenously, before engaging in sex with them, with or without consent. Damn. So on top of all this, he's been a creep way before he started killing yeah, people, he doesn't, and people just didn't say like, anything about it. raping people. That's horrible. 
Freddie also stated that one of the conditions for him to stay with Robert was for him to persuade young men that Robert found attractive to come to the house and attend parties. Should Robert find out that any of these men were police informants, he would use this knowledge as a tool to blackmail the young men to his advantage. In addition to this information, Freddie was also able to identify three other young men in the photographs, Todd Stoops, Robert Sheldon, and Larry Wayne Pearson. Investigators would later discover that Robert had paid a $30 fee to secure a bond for Larry in June 1987, and no further records existed to indicate that Larry was still alive following this record. Remember when he bailed him out of jail? And then he decided to kidnap him on the way home? Yeah. So after that, there was no paper trail for, for Larry. So that was how they put it together, that he was the last person to see him alive. Wow. However, investigators did find out that in August of 1987, Robert had filed an assault report from a hospital in which he alleged a man named Larry Pearson had deeply bitten his penis during oral sex, causing a serious laceration. I forgot about that. He already murdered him at this point. Now he's literally legally filing an assault report on someone that he knows is deceased. That's, yeah, that's... That is beyond my comprehension. Yeah. The, again, it's it's the cover-up thing. It's like, you know... It's the narcissism. Yeah. They're never going to find out. Yeah, exactly. God. But I have to find... Well, you know, somebody clearly assaulted my, my peen. My manhood. Here, my manhood. And now I have to... You know, if I don't file assault charges, it's going to look weird. You know what I mean? I don't know. They should have just cut it off. Sorry, it's too, it's too wounded. We gotta get yeah. you off. <laughs> On top of this, an interview with Robert Sheldon's employers had confirmed that he had been a reliable employee until he suddenly stopped showing up in April of 1985, further burying Robert. Shortly after the search of the property, Robert was informed as to what the detectives had found. What? That's odd. That's weird. A skull in my closet? Don't remember leaving that behind. The same afternoon that he agreed to pose for the reenactment photos, investigators attempted to conduct their first official interview with him, where Robert invoked his right to silence. They were also going to attempt to get handwriting samples from him in order to compare it to the journal, but he refused to cooperate and was therefore sentenced to six months in jail for contempt of court. Hell yeah. So they got him on something, right? Which honestly, like, that's kind of genius because they're like, okay, well, you're going to fucking jail anyways, you asshole. Until you want to think about what you've done and confess. You might as well cooperate. Robert was initially charged with one count of felonious restraint, one count of assault, and seven counts of forcible sodomy. He was assigned a temporary public defender as his legal representation and held in custody at a Jackson County jail in lieu of a $500,000 bail. I did the, what is it, conversion rate? Mm -hmm. That would be $1.1 million today. Damn. In late April, the skull found inside Robert's closet was identified via x-ray as that of Robert Sheldon. Hmm. The same day, two men separately phoned the police department to state that one of the seven young men depicted in the photos was a former high school friend of theirs named Mark Wallace. Detectives got in touch with Mark's sister, who confirmed that he had been missing since mid-1985. Shortly after, investigators discovered that photograph labeled D, released to the media, was one Larry Pearson. Robert would be formally charged with the murder by dismemberment of Larry in July after the head discovered in his backyard was formally identified as Larry's on May 12th. Mm -hmm. On July 22nd, 1988, a grand jury formally indicted Robert for the murder of Larry Wayne Pearson. 
The following month, he was arraigned and pleaded guilty to the first-degree murder of Larry Pearson. Oh, he admitted it. He pleaded guilty. The plea of guilty was entered following a late-morning recess in the arraignment hearing and came as a shock to both the judge and prosecuting attorneys. He was not going to plead guilty. Then they went to a mid-morning recess and he came back and all of a sudden he's like, guilty. Yeah, I did it. Yeah. God. Following the submission and acceptance of the plea, the judge insisted that Robert confess under oath to Pearson's death. Content warning. In response to questioning, Robert stated, quote, I put a plastic bag over his head and tied it with rope and allowed him to suffocate. When asked if he performed this act deliberately and with malice afterthought, Robert simply stated, quote, yes. He was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. Upon being sentenced, he was taken to the Missouri State Penitentiary, but was later temporarily placed in protective custody at the Potosi Correctional Center due to concerns for his safety. Aww, oh, are you worried about him? Is he so concerned for his safety? Oh my god. Hope they gave him the electric. Gave him the electric. The electric treatment. Gave him the electric whoopsie daisy. In the butthole. A second guilty plea was submitted on August 24th, earning Robert a second life term for one charge of forcible sodomy against Christopher Bryson, and he would also receive a further term of seven years pertaining to one court of felonious restraint against Christopher. Despite initially pleading not guilty to the other five murders on September 13th, 1988, because why would you- I don't get that! I don't get that- like, you oh, I killed conf- two people, but I not seven. But not seven. That's ridiculous. Yeah. How, Why would, how I? would I do that? Despite initially not pleading guilty with the agreement of his two attorneys, Robert ultimately conducted a plea bargain with prosecutors to avoid the death penalty in the case of the remaining five murders. As part of the plea bargain, Robert agreed to confess in graphic detail as to whom he had killed, what indignities he had subjected each victim, how he killed each victim, and what he had done with their bodies. These confessions were given to prosecutors between December 13th and December 15th, 1988. So it took him two days to explain all of this to them. In return, prosecutors agreed not to seek the death penalty. On December 19th, 1988, Robert formally waived his rights to be tried for any of the outstanding murder charges upon the understanding that he was to be convicted of one further count of first-degree murder for Robert Sheldon and four counts of second-degree murder. Which is bullshit. How is it second? How could it possibly be second degree? It's not. Yeah. It's a plea. That's just how those things freaking work. He formally pleaded guilty to these charges before Judge Robert Myers. Members of the public were actually prevented from attending the hearing, with only family members of the victims and news reporters allowed to be present. (laughs) Oh, but news reporters. Yeah, right. Nobody else. The public can't be in here, but news reports. Eh, All right. Okay, that's fine. In response to the guilty pleas. Judge Myers imposed five further concurrent life sentences with an additional condition barring any future prospect of parole, meaning, a.k.a. he would never, ever get out. Yeah. They go on to explain his confessions, which are laid out in detail online, but for time's sake and for the sake of not being graphic, I'm not going to explain each of them, but you can Mm -hmm. definitely find that online if you want. I will state, however, that although police extensively searched for the remains of the victims throughout their initial investigations, the confession Robert provided confirmed that the dismembered bodies were stowed in trash bags and taken to the landfill, and they for- therefore they were never recovered. Oh, that's so sad. It gets worse. 
Because you're going to be pissed. <laughs> oh, damn it. In the years following his convictions and incarceration, Robert granted an interview to a TV station and corresponded with a number of different individuals. To all concerned, he attempted to restore his image as a, quote, sensitive citizen who has simply, quote, made mistakes in committing his crimes. What? What the fuck ever? <laughs> I'm just a sensitive citizen and I just made some mistakes. <laughs> Using your debit card too many times and then you go into the grocery store and then you go to check out and your card is declined. That's a mistake. That's a mistake. <laughs> he further claimed that he had been unfairly demonized by the media before, during, and after oh. his hearings and plea bargains. Oh, me. Oh, and get this. He also claimed that police ineptitude had resulted in his being allowed to remain at liberty following his what? first murder. Oh my god. Okay, no, that's like... <laughs> that's the whole, um... Well, you let me out, so I did it again. Well, you let me do it. Like, the police were so dumb. I mean... (laughs) He's not wrong. He's not wrong. (laughs) That's terrible. He's not wrong. He's not. Well, I mean... uh, He was questioned for two disappearances in the beginning. And then they just let him go. But that doesn't mean that he should be like, oh, okay. Ooh, That's free his rain. excuse, though, Fucking. is that he's like, oh, that it was they didn't figure it out soon enough. So what was I supposed to do? I guess I'm just supposed to keep killing people, keep moitering, keep moitering. <laughs> oh, get this. He also lodged multiple complaints with prison officials regarding prison conditions. <laughs> oh, are you upset that you don't have oh, a soft bed to lay in? Are you an advocate now? He also wrote several letters to the local prison minister claiming that prison officials knew of his high blood pressure, yet were not providing him with his medication. Oh my oh, god! Little baby! Is that why like, you wouldn't become a five-star athlete? <laughs> literally. <sighs> this pisses me off. In 1992, Robert contacted the counselor who he first met when he became incarcerated, Reverend Roger Coleman. He informed Coleman of his distress due to the staff withholding his medication. At 2 p.m. on October 8, 1992, Robert complained to prison staff of chest pains and was taken to the infirmary. Medical boy. Giddy boy. Medical staff determined his heart was unstable and called EMS. He was taken to the hospital in Columbia, Missouri, where he was pronounced dead from a heart attack at 3.55 p.m. at the age of 43. Like he father, like dad. <laughs> he outlived his dad. That's amazing. Shortly after his death, the judge at his trial, Alvin Randall, was informed and sarcastically responded with, quote, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. Oh, savage, bro. Your honor. <laughs> Your honor, your majesty. <laughs> That's fucking badass. I'm sorry. Damn, couldn't have happened to a nicer guy. <laughs> According to published reports, although Robert had a depressive personality disorder, he was also diagnosed a sexual sadist who gained extreme sexual excitation from the humiliation, pain, and torture to which he had subjected his victims. On top of this... Is dis- that in the DSM-5? It is. I looked it up. Mm. On top of this, despite his claims to media individuals, he never expressed any degree of remorse for his actions and referred to his victims as, quote, play toys in an interview he granted shortly before his death. Not experiments. In November of 1988, auctions of Robert's vast collection of antiques were held on four separate dates with the intention that all proceeds raised be used to pay his high legal fees. 
The auction attracted considerable interest among across America and even overseas, because you know he had, you know, contacts. Yeah. By the end of the first day, more than $60,000, or $137,000 today, was raised. His house was also purchased by a local businessman and demolished. Hell yeah. Yeah. Fuck yeah. I'm sure it's not like piss and vinegar. It wants yeah, to be awful. in there. By the time of Robert's arrest, he had abducted, tortured, and murdered at least six young men. In addition, more than 20 different men were depicted in the Polaroids found on the property. Although Robert claimed he only murdered six of the men total. Oh my god, you're such a freaking angel. Bless you, bless you, sir. His victims are as follows. Jerry Howell, 19. Robert Sheldon, 20. Mark Wallace, 27. James Ferris, 25. Todd Stoops, 23. Larry Wayne Pearson, 20. And Christopher Bryson, who escaped, 22. So, that is the end of the Robert Berdella story. What an intense case. Right? And this is one I had not heard of. Oh, yay! Yeah, I found like, one that you didn't all. know about. I didn't know about this one hardly at all either. I knew a little bit about it, but not definitely not as much. Yeah. But... Very I, know, I think it's kind of a bummer that he, you know, just suffered from a heart attack. At the, I'm not it's suffered. It's too kind. Yeah, I think so, too. I mean... I just... I, I... Like, what a weird, like psychology of it all because he's still even after his arrest and being in prison for murder he's still trying to like do his due diligence as a kind of like upstanding citizen yeah it's very interesting it was really weird to me how it was like okay this like stand-up dude like family man even though he didn't have a family but you know what i mean like the ambiance of the word like you know community asset you know things like this and then it almost seems like all of the sudden turned murderer and mm. then after he got caught it was like a switch back yeah. it's very strange it i don't know if that has to do with the uh depressive personality disorder maybe he was i don't want to excuse it of course but maybe during this time that he was abducting these men he was going through a depressive state mm. and maybe that kind of triggered something or maybe vice versa maybe he was going through a manic state and when he wasn't right. he was going through the other stuff like depressing. manic or anxiety or whatever and that's you know that sense of control yeah so because i've heard a lot of things about sexual sadism that doesn't necessarily always include murder i mean of course right. there's been some people in the past that have taken it to an extreme but i feel like that doesn't equal murder like yeah i thought Sexual sadism was more of the fact that, like, you get the high off of, like, a sexual experience of some type, and then you are always looking to, like, push the envelope. Like, I think there was that that one guy that he found that he really liked cutting himself, Mm -hmm. and so, but he eventually cut his entire body up so badly that he bled to death. Oh, my gosh. But that, it it escalated so quickly, you know? And so that, I thought, was more attached to... The sexual sadism. Well, when I've heard... Then doing it to others, someone else. Yeah. But, I mean, I guess it is pushing the envelope just with someone else, I guess. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. when I've heard the sexual sadism thing in the past as well, and it has been with someone else, I've always heard of, like, not always, but there's been times where I've heard of consensual things like that. Like, they want to inflict pain on someone, and they find someone that is willing to be that person. Right. That they can do that to. Yeah. And that's usually enough. But in this case, it was like... And it wasn't even, like... Okay, there's my guy. I'm going to go get him, bring him back with me, and then do this plan. It was like, 
oh, well, he's here. He's just drunk well. enough. Yeah. Exactly. Like, it was so odd. It was, he was like, opportunistic about it. Yeah. Which makes, to me, seem more just, like, of, of an indicative of just a traditional serial, not traditional serial killer, but you know what I mean? Yeah. Like, someone that's opportunistic. Yeah. Like, uh, you know, I think we mentioned Ted Bundy, although I didn't mean to mention Ted Bundy in the first episode. I was, I was definitely talking about Dahmer, because I Googled that afterwards. <laughs> <laughs> but um, with Ted Bundy, he was opportunistic. He mm-hmm. would go to the beach, and he would find someone that would follow him or yeah. whatever. Or Charlie and, Manson, even. Yeah. Like, people that would be willing to just fall all over him and be right there. He yeah. He didn't have to work for it, yeah. you know? Well, like, that didn't... sounds kind of bad. He but... didn't kill anybody, though. Yeah. But he was a manipulator, and I feel like he used people that would gravitate towards That's him true. in order to control them. Right, you know? yeah, yeah. And yeah. he controlled with the mind, not necessarily yeah. physically. Really wild. We definitely yeah. need to talk about Charlie Manson. Sometimes. Did you know that Charlie Manson's mom once sold him for a pint of beer? I believe it. <laughs> she did. I yeah. think she got him back, but... Well, I think that he said that his mom was a prostitute. Yeah, she yeah. was a wild one. Yeah. That's Anyways, awful. thank you guys for... <laughs> on that note. On that note. Prostitution. <laughs> Thank you guys for joining us uh, for our, another part two. There's or another two parter. There is been a couple, so maybe we should do some small cases yeah. for the next couple, just to kind of ease the the weight and the you know. Already on my next subject, so oh, that's yeah, exciting. and I think it'll it'll just be one. Yeah, but yeah, we'll definitely come back with another another uh, case and another mental breakdown. If you guys have any suggestions, please reach out to us. We do have uh, Gmail is diagnosingakiller at gmail.com. We are on Twitter at Killer Diagnosis. We are on Instagram at Diagnosing a Killer. We also are on Patreon, patreon.com slash Diagnosing a Killer. And I think we are in the works of potentially starting a TikTok channel. I think that might yeah. be happening. We're talking about maybe getting some videos up. Some ideas. Maybe just a little couple teasers. I'll put like a couple uh, lines from the next episode on a mm-hmm. video so that you can get excited for it whenever you fun. see it. Yeah. I like that. So in the meantime, reach out to us. We love you guys. Thanks for being here with us. And we will see you soon. Love you. Love you. Bye. Bye.